Welcome to another Christian Education National Podcast. Another episode where we bring you the audio of a presentation that has and hopefully will continue to encourage Christian educators. May it be an encouragement to you in your work for His Kingdom. Embedded in the music we've just been singing is the word glory. And uh, we want to reflect for a little while on uh, glory uh, today, uh, particularly with reference to uh, John's Gospel uh, and chapter uh, 12. I just want to read something off the phone, so I'll just get that there as well. A really helpful book that we've been using at church over the last little while and encouraging people to read is this one. It's uh, called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You by Tony Reinke. Uh, Theologically, I think it's really good and helpful in its discussion, not only of uh, phones, but of uh, new technologies more generally. He uh, crafts a term which has struck me as really important when he writes about covenantal concentration. Covenantal concentration. And he sets that up as a virtue Uh, as against uh, individualistic distraction, covenantal concentration in the face of increasing opportunities and enticements for multitasking, immediate access to information, multiple entertaining distractions, etc. Reinke contends in his book that the Bible requires a different kind of engagement. He writes, God's word demands our highest levels of literary concentration because it requires relational reading, not the superficial chit-chat of a cocktail party, but the covenantal concentration of marriage vows. I find that to be profoundly important. He goes on to say this about scripture, and I'll just read it from the uh, version I have on the phone. He says, the Bible is not a book to get through, to read cover to cover and then put on a shelf. Neither is a book to browse or skim. The Bible is our open door to hear God's voice both alone and together in community. It is intended to be bottomless in its profundity and endless in its relevance. It is less of a book and more of a world of revelation in which we live and move and have our being. This book gives us life. It moves and pushes God's redemptive plan forward And then quoting John Piper, he writes, in fact, the whole purpose of God for the universe stands or falls on the book. If the book fails, everything fails. If the book fails, everything fails. And we might say in this context, if the book fails, our educational purpose, practice, vision fails. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? And I don't want us to think of a bare text, a book that we're wedded to apart from 
our love for the God who is known and speaks through the book, in the book, by the book, to Jesus and gospel and life and community and faith and hope and love. So we're not talking about the book apart from its unique purpose. It is a book like other books, but it is also a book unlike any other book in its unique, authoritative, inspired testimony to Christ. If the book fails, everything fails. Covenantal concentration is Reinke's way of speaking about attending to our relationships with Father, Son, Holy Spirit and a community of like-minded others, family, friends, colleagues in a settled, focused, attentive conversation that occurs over time between people living in a committed, deep relationality. Reading is just one way of biblical immersion, but an important way which will animate our faithful engagement with culture. Covenantal concentration. This commitment arises out of our fundamental rhythm of life, which can be most helpfully imagined and understood in terms of dying and rising with Christ daily. Yesterday we heard a lot about identity and it was really helpful. But the biblical metaphor or understanding of our identity is our baptism into Christ. It is our participation in the narrative of Jesus' life. It is this strange and wonderful tension of dying and rising in the spirit, in the community, in daily life, dying and rising in Christ. And Paul never puts that away in Philippians 3. I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I've always been struck by those words, becoming like him in his death. We might have thought he would have said becoming like him in his resurrection. But Paul doesn't. He says, I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then Paul writes, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Our identification with Christ our participation in his sufferings is not something we'll ever put off. And so quite beautifully, when we ask the question, how do we engage with scripture? I want to come to a quote which we get from John Webster, which I think is the most wonderful statement I've ever seen of how to read the Bible. Webster considers the act of reading scripture as an instance of the fundamental pattern of all Christian existence, which is dying and rising with Jesus Christ through the purging and quickening power of the Holy Spirit. Reading scripture 
is thus best understood as an aspect of mortification and vivification. That is, to read scripture is to be slain and made alive. Yes, the Bible is a book like other books, but no, it's not a book like any other book. In its inspired authority to bring us to Jesus. And so why do we come to texts such as Leviticus or Zephaniah or Numbers? It's to know Christ. It's to die and rise in Christ. And in coming to Scripture, we don't come seeking information. We come to be formed in death and resurrection. And so as we come to the text, we come to something that's difficult, that requires work, that places us in a community of like-minded others, such as schools and collegial relationships in staff rooms, we are slain and made alive together. Think about what that means as we pray, Lord, speak to me through Leviticus or Numbers or Zephaniah or Haggai or Malachi or Hebrews or John or Matthew or Revelation. Webster rightly asserts that we read scripture to live in conformity with the dying and rising Messiah that Jesus the King might be formed in our lives. He understands that we don't read scripture to merely glean information or to somehow master the text. There is no mastery of the text. The text masters us. Webster asserts that reading the Bible well can only occur as a kind of brokenness, a relinquishment of willed mastery of the text. Those are beautiful and challenging and rare words. Our way of indwelling scripture is a particular instance of being slain and made alive. Let me say strongly on this last morning of iTech that if genuinely Christian education is to be practiced in our institutions, then teachers and staff more widely who have a Trinitarian hermeneutic, who have the Bible in their bones and whose desires, imaginations and characters are fired by the gospel of Christ, such teachers are crucial. They are the most valuable resource of the Christian school or college. And we rightly speak about pedagogy and curriculum and assessment and all the practices of education, absolutely. But put those practices in the hands of teachers who aren't fired by the gospel, who don't have the Bible in their bones, and the practices are hollow and empty. Teachers who love scripture, who love the stories of scripture, who live in and out of those stories, who know Christ in keeping with scripture, are the most valuable resource of the Christian institution. We must seek after, train, protect, refresh, mentor and nurture such teachers and staff. 
so that they remain in our schools, assume leadership roles, and leave in the whole movement with biblical knowledge, gospel participation, wisdom, imagination, reimagination, and zeal. If we do speak about reimagining, then for this final session, the one book of scripture that we must spend a little bit of time in is John. It's profound in its reimagining of what happened at the cross. So I want to refer for a few moments to John chapter 12. This is the moment, we are told, in 1219, the Pharisees are saying, after Lazarus has risen, the whole world has gone after him. And then in chapter 12, verse 20, we read, some Greeks among those who went up for worship at the festival were coming to Jesus. Greeks were coming to Jesus. They want to see him. Uh, one of John's favourite words, they want to behold him. They want to see him. And uh, the Greeks have come and Philip and Andrew come to Jesus and say, the world is coming and Jesus, this is your hour. They've come to see you. They've come to worship. And Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's Passover, it's Jerusalem, it's time for glory. And possibly at that moment, as he used that word glory, people thought of the tabernacle, the temple, the Shekinah cloud, the wealth of Solomon, the wisdom of David, the rule of the king. And the images of Old Testament glory culminating for a brief moment in 1 Kings 10 and Solomon are wisdom, wealth, bright and glorious images. The new exodus is about to occur, perhaps. The king is about to set his people free. It's time for glory. Those who knew the Hebrew scriptures when Jesus said, the time has come for glory, might have thought of Daniel 7 and the Son of Man overthrowing the beasts and ascending to the throne of the universe. But then strangely in John, Jesus starts speaking about seeds falling into the earth and dying. He talks about losing one's life, about serving. He says, my soul is troubled. And then he cries out and we have this father-son dialogue. Father, glorify your name. The voice returns, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it, said it thundered. Others, an angel had spoken. And then Jesus says, now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Glory. Lifted up. 
This is not the first time John has used those words, lifted up. He is talking about the king being glorified and being lifted up, but not in the ways that we would normally think. In John 3, when it's first used, this term lifted up, just in the text prior to John 3.16, we read, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him, for God so loved the world. Jesus is going to be lifted up like Numbers 21, like a serpent on a pole in a wilderness. That Old Testament story is the background for John 12, when I am lifted up. Jesus takes the phrase lifted up, he takes the idea of glory and completely reimagines it. He's not speaking about tabernacle glory and bright shining Shekinah. He's speaking about crucifixion. He's speaking about his death, John explains. Forevermore, glory encompasses sacrificial, loving, crucifixion, and then resurrection. Jesus says what he's about to do is judge the world, cast out the cosmocrator, the prince of the world, the powerful world ruler, and draw people from all nations, Greeks, Jews, to himself. This death of the Messiah is his lifting up. John hasn't put into his book the transfiguration of Jesus, like Matthew, Mark and Luke have done. He has wanted to hold the idea of glory for a new reimagined meaning. He hasn't shown us Jesus shining. He has shown us Jesus lifted up on the cross. And here is what John has remarkably done. The lifting up of Jesus is both crucifixion and coronation. It is both humiliation and exaltation. It is both execution and enthronement. The cross is a throne in John and the most glorious king who has ever lived is on the throne on the cross. Forevermore, God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit will be known by the glory of the cross. Revelation will say, we sang it this morning, I think, that the lion is a lamb who was slain, who will rule forever. At the cross to the outward eye, one saw the utmost in degradation, the death of a criminal. But to the eye of faith, glory, supreme glory, as God stepped into our mess and rescued us. Oregon employs the striking expression that this is humble glory. Humble glory.
We are the people of this king. This is our reimagining of glory. And in our times and places in the arena of education, this is what it looks like to be glorified, the crucified and risen Jesus. In Luke and Acts, Jesus ascends and the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. But in John, Jesus doesn't leave. In the last chapter, he's still on the beach cooking breakfast and talking about death and resurrection. Why? Because John has Jesus enthroned on the earth. He doesn't wait for Daniel 7 to be fulfilled. He sees this as enthronement, and Jesus has brought heaven to earth in the cross, the resurrection, and the new day of breakfast on the beach. From now on, when we pray the words, Lord, glorify yourself. Glorify yourself in our lives. Do you know what you're praying? That doesn't look like a triumphalistic prayer anymore, does it? It actually is a prayer to join in Jesus' narrative of dying and rising. On our first morning, we read Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. The last verse in that prayer is, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. When Paul prays the word glory, he's not thinking freedom from suffering, triumph, winning, overpowering enemies. He is thinking identification with the Christ of crucifixion, resurrection, outpoured spirit, witness, ministry, work, until Jesus returns. To him be glory in the church, in our schools, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations. Let's pray. Lord, to you be the glory. We can't even imagine what you've done for us in the glory of the cross. But let us not be simplistic or naive or unbiblical in the way we use that word glorify. You have been lifted up. And we pray we would lift you up in our lives as we identify with you in dying and rising daily. That we would lift you up in our schools, in our homes, in our relationships and workplaces, that we might be slain and made alive each time we come to Scripture and that you would be lifted up in our lives today and over these next years um, until we gather again. Lord, be glorified. Be glorified. Be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.